Let's have another word of prayer. Our God and Father, again, we thank you that we can gather around your word and we want to hear Jesus. And we pray that you would now open minds and hearts. Again, we ask for your blessing, Lord, that you would feed us on your word, that you would help us as we consider the call of Christ. Pray that all of us would be moved to follow you all the days of our lives. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, sometimes a preacher has to get up and show the relevance of his text. So, for example, it might be the principles governing kings in ancient Israel, Deuteronomy 17. I don't know how many of you all have studied that. But I would have to work pretty hard to show you, and I think I could do it, that it was relevant to your life, these principles governing kings in ancient Israel. Or maybe something like the cities of refuge for someone who accidentally kills somebody. Those six cities of refuge you can read about in Numbers. I would have to work pretty hard to tell you, but probably not as hard as the first one, to tell you this is relevant. God has a word for you for your life today. But then there's other times where a text is, if you're paying attention, very clearly relevant. You don't have to ask, well, what does this have to do with my life? How does this have anything to do with the here and the now and what I'm doing? And I'm saying that our text that we've come to now in Mark 8.34 is like that. It should be at least. I hope you can see its relevance on the surface because Jesus here is giving a demanding call to follow him. And it's for all people everywhere, whoever would desire to follow him. So our text is very relevant It's vitally important. This might be the most important statement about Christian discipleship in all of the scriptures. And by discipleship, I mean following Jesus. As I said in the first session, discipleship is learning. That word disciple, student, learner. But it's more than just that. It's following Jesus. So let me read the verse here in Mark 8, 34, keeping in mind what we just talked about. 8, 34, Jesus says this. When he had called the people to himself with his disciples, his 12 disciples, he said to them, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So that's our text that we're going to consider. It's a demanding call and we will first look at its context, which we've already considered So it should be a little bit easier, and then we will look at the content of this demanding call. First context, then content. So the context of this call, and that's in particular verses 31 to 33. Now, one of the first rules of biblical interpretation, if you're going to sit down with the Bible and you're going to make sense of it and come to right conclusions and rightly apply it, one of the first rules is that context is key. You've probably even studied this in English and other things that you might read. Context is key. The Bible isn't just a string of of isolated text that we can just pluck up here and there. Now, sometimes you can consider a text in relative isolation, but you're asking for trouble if you're just going to take a text and lift it right out of its surroundings. That's what I mean by its context. What comes before, what comes after, its surroundings. You need to read the Bible with an awareness of the surrounding of what you're reading, of the context, or else you might misapply or misunderstand. For example, you've probably heard 
I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That comes from Philippians 4. This is probably one that is most often misapplied. You see it in sports. A big game is coming up and the guy says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can hit this home run. I can get this touchdown, whatever it might be. You've got a big test coming up. And I'm not saying this doesn't apply to that, but what's the context of that? Does anybody know the context of Paul saying, I can do all things through him, through Christ who strengthens me? Where is Paul? He's in prison in Rome. Paul's in prison and and he's struggling and he's saying, I have learned to be content in all of my circumstances. Whether I have much or little, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So you see how the context helps us understand and gives a depth to that statement and saying, yes, God, by his grace, will strengthen me to be content even in this Roman prison cell as I'm lonely and I'm suffering. And then in your life, you can apply that. So it's not just... I've got some big thing I need to do and and I can do all things. You need to understand the context. That's just an example. Well, as we look to our text, context is key. And to give you another example here, Jesus talks about self-denial. Let him deny himself. If I were speaking to you of self-denial in the context of training for a race, some of you all run cross-country maybe. I think it's cross-country season now. If I say, okay, you need to deny yourself. I'm your cross-country coach. You're going to be thinking what? All right, there's certain foods. I'm going to deny myself. I'm not going to eat this. I'm going to eat that. I'm going to get up early. I'm going to work out, etc. So the context is important. But we're not talking about training for a race. We're not talking about anything like that when, when, when we say self-denial here. Jesus is talking about something much deeper and weightier. Remember that we've come to a turning point in Mark's gospel and the pivot or the hinge is that confession of Peter. Who do you say I am? Peter says, you are the Christ. That's the hinge. And it's from that point on that Jesus is giving them this new instruction that's open and clear and saying, I must suffer. I must be rejected and die and rise again. This new instruction. This is the context. So keep this in mind. This is that word that Peter did not receive well. And we can understand their shock. We can understand their sadness. This is their beloved teacher. They've been following him literally for three years. And the thought of his departure and not just, hey, I'm leaving. Maybe you've had a friend leave. I'm leaving town. Jesus is saying, I'm leaving this world. And I'm going to do it in such a way that it's going to involve much suffering. So they're grieved, and we can understand that. His hour has come, though, the appointed hour for him to die. So, I must suffer, says Jesus. He's thinking of the things of God. Remember, Peter doesn't have his mind on the things of God, but what? The things of man. That's what Jesus has just told him in verse 33. He's saying, Jesus, spare yourself. And Jesus is saying, I must not spare myself. I must do these things. I must Finish the work. That's the context here. That's the context. And then we have him saying, if anybody desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow after me. Do you see how the context adds weight to that and how it shines a light upon what Jesus is saying? It's his own self-denial. And it wasn't just Jesus saying, hey, I'm going to have this 40-day fast in the world. That's self-denial. But it's that he's laying down his life. So it's self-denial 
in a complete sense, complete self-denial. He was completely devoted to the Father and to the will of the Father, and he denied himself completely, and he took up his cross, and it was a literal cross, which they didn't understand at this time. So that's what we're talking about here. When we're talking about self-denial and cross-bearing, you need to keep in mind that Jesus is talking about his own self-denial, even to death, on the cross. So what we're called to is Jesus is saying, come and follow me is nothing less than a complete self-denial. A complete devotion to God, no matter the cost. That's the context. That's how we need to see this call. It's heavy. It's weighty. We're being called to follow in the footsteps of one who went into suffering and died. But it's also glorious, and we shouldn't forget this, because we're called to follow one who is risen and who is reigning and who is returning, and we'll consider those things more later. So it's not just be a disciple of Jesus and, and you need to deny yourself, you need to be willing to get up early, etc., etc. Those may be good things. Jesus is saying it might cost you your life. Jesus is saying, give me yourself, die to self. So I want you to understand that. Does that make sense? This is a complete self-denial. It's a demanding call. So that's the context. Just by way of reminder, we're going to spend most of our time now on the content of this demanding call, verse 34. At the beginning of his ministry, Jesus called 12 men to come follow him. We call them the disciples, the 12. Several of them were fishermen. Peter and Andrew, we read, left their nets and followed Jesus. This was their livelihood. They just left their nets. They left all and followed Jesus. We also read of James and John. They were fishers. They left their father Zebedee in the fishing boat. This was the family business with the hired servants, and they went after Jesus. Levi, also called Matthew, had a lucrative business, a tax business, and he left his tax office and he followed Jesus. You can read about all of that at the beginning of Mark. Jesus calling these men to himself to follow him. They left all and followed Jesus for about three years, every day following him. Literally following his footsteps, learning from him day after day, these These disciples or students of Jesus were learning from him. And the call then to follow Jesus is one of discipleship. Just like these men, Jesus is calling us. He called them to leave all and to come to him. And he's calling us today, calling us to learn from him. Now, notice first that the demanding call was given to a crowd of people. If you look at the first part of Mark 34, when he had called the people to himself with his disciples also. Because you might say, now, this is just for the elite. Jesus is just giving this demanding call to his 12, to his inner circle. But you see, Jesus is calling this crowd. He's saying, come here. And there's a big crowd around him with the disciples also. So this call is going out to the crowds, to the masses. So it's not just for the 12. There's some things we read in the scripture and say, okay, that just applies to apostles. But you can't say, okay, uh, Jesus isn't really calling all of us who would follow him to self-denial and cross-bearing. No, he, he gathers the crowd. And so again, context, 
we understand this is given to a broad group and it's given to us. This is a word for all people in all ages. It's a word for us today. I want you to hear this as if Jesus is speaking to you today because he is when God's word is open. Jesus is speaking here. This is a call to us, to you, you who are sitting here. So this call applies to us. There's not a distinction between disciples. I've heard someone say, well, you've got Christians and then you've got your serious Christians and they're the disciples of Christ. No, there's no distinction like that in the New Testament. If you're a Christian, you're a disciple of Christ. You're a follower of Christ. Jesus, in another place, calls sinners to himself. And Matthew 11, come to me. You've probably heard this text. Come to me, I will give you rest. He's talking about true rest. And then he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. So when Jesus calls sinners to himself in order to be saved, he also says, learn from me. Take my yoke upon you. That's the the language of discipleship, of really following Jesus. Now, We've come to learn from Jesus, and there's three parts to this call that he gives us. And we're going to look at those each in order. And it's pretty plain. You can see in the text there, there's three things. First, he says, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself. And then let him take up his cross, and then let him follow me. It's actually three imperatives. That's why I'm repeating the let him, let him, or let her These are commands. Let him do this, this, and this. One person uses this picture of traveling, and I like this. He says, three things are necessary in traveling. First, to say farewell, in this case, to self. Farewell to self. Secondly, to carry our baggage. Here, it's the cross. And then thirdly, to proceed with the journey. Jesus says, follow me. And the only question is our desire to make this journey. Jesus says, if anybody desires to come after him. So that's the first question I put to you. Do you have any desire to follow Jesus? I hope you do. I hope you desire to follow Jesus, but it's not enough just to want to follow Jesus. Jesus says, if you desire, then listen to what I have to say. So listen to what Jesus has to say if you want to follow him. Let him deny himself. That's the first thing. Let her deny herself. The first thing, it must be the first thing, self-denial. This is the first rule of Christian discipleship. It's even been called the sum of the Christian life. Self-denial. Self-denial. What does it mean, though? To deny means to refuse to recognize or to acknowledge. And the verb occurs most often, we would think of this, Peter's denial. You know, Peter denied Christ. Peter had said, he was very certain of himself and said, Jesus, I will never deny you. Because he's saying, you all are going to be scattered. What's going to happen to me is going to be hard for you all and you're going to scatter. Peter says, not me. I'm not going to deny you. And when it came to it, you remember Peter, as he's pressed, they said, hey, Peter, weren't you with Jesus? And he's saying, I don't know the man. He's denying Christ. He's refusing to acknowledge Christ. Who are you talking about? So he very strongly, three times, he denied Christ. I don't know the man. He refused to acknowledge Christ. It's the same word. That's what Jesus is calling us to do, to deny ourselves, to disown ourselves. Just as Peter, for a time, disowned Christ, we're being called to, in a sense, disown ourselves. 
Jesus is calling us to acknowledge that we don't belong to ourselves. We are not our own. We belong to God. That's what he's calling us to acknowledge. And then to give ourselves entirely to God. Deny yourself. Deny yourself and commit yourself to God. That's what he's talking about. And it's complete, just as we've already seen. This idea of self-denial is not a shallow thing. For Jesus, it meant his whole being. He devoted himself entirely to God, and it cost him his life, his self-denial. And we're called to nothing less. Jesus is our ultimate pattern of self-denial here, and of course, of cross-bearing. Think about who Jesus is again, and the fact that he didn't deny himself, that he didn't spare himself, but denied himself. Think about that. When you find it hard to deny yourself, think about Jesus, the Son of God, denying himself. Yielding himself to God, saying, not what I will, but what you will. That is, we could say, the motto of someone who's really denied themselves. That you would say from your heart, God, not what I will, not what I want with my life, but what you will. Have you said that? I hope many of you have. And if you've said that, if that resonates in your heart, that's not a natural desire. God's doing something in you to say, yes, God, this is hard I have failed, you confess your sins, but you say, you know, deep down, Lord, I want to do what you want me to do. Take my life. That's, that's what the heart of a disciple says. Not my will, but your will, God. That's self-denial. That's what we're called to. To say, God, I belong to you, body and soul. This is really where the Christian life begins, with self-denial. By nature... Self is on the throne. I don't have to convince you of that, I'm sure. By nature, we all have a bent toward self. Self-serving. Self-seeking. We're going to look out for number one. That's just our default as we come into this world as fallen sinners. Self-will. I have little children. Anybody who's ever had little children know you need to train their wills because they have a fallen will, just like all of us enter this world. They want to do what they want to do. We all by nature want to do what we want to do and not what God wants us to do, not what our parents want us to do either. And God wants us to obey our parents. So you see, that is our bent. We come into this world living for self. And this is a call no longer to live for self. And that's the language that Paul uses, 2 Corinthians 15, 5. He says, Christ died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Everybody lives for self, no exceptions. He's saying Christ died for them that they might not live for themselves, but for him. That's a radical change for self to be dethroned. What do you think it's going to take for self to be dethroned? What what change? A deep inward change, right? A radical change. We call it regeneration, new birth. Maybe you've heard of that term, maybe you've not. It just means that God, by his spirit, makes you a new person from the inside out, changes your heart, gives you a new heart so that it can even be spoken of as it is in John chapter three by Jesus as being born again. That's what everyone needs to be born again by the spirit of God. Otherwise, self is never gonna be dethroned. 
So it's a denying of self. The person who no longer lives for self in terms of the scriptures also has Christ living in him. Christ lives in him. He lives for Christ. Christ lives in him. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. Deny yourself. That's the language of dying to self. I've been crucified with Christ, says Paul. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. That's Galatians 2.20. So whoever desires to come after Christ, let him or let her deny himself. Let her deny herself and say no to self. That's what Jesus is saying. Maybe you've sung the hymn, take my life, let it be. Consecrated Lord to thee. That's, that's the idea. I've prayed that often in my own prayers. Lord, take my life, mold me, shape me. I'm in your hands. That's, that's what Jesus is calling us to. It's the first rule of Christian discipleship, self-denial, and it's the sum of the Christian life. And this is going to work out in a thousand different ways practically in your life. Jesus is talking about it in an ultimate sense and saying that if you're going to follow me, you have to completely deny yourself. And that may even look like losing your life. But this also works out in many different smaller ways in your life. If you're going to follow Christ and and trust him and obey him, there's going to be daily self-denial. You will have many opportunities every day to practice this. So it's in the home. If I'm to be the husband God has called me to be, I need to deny myself. I used to think maybe, you know, I'm not that selfish. I got married and realized, hey, I'm pretty selfish. And then kids came. I'm really selfish. So you understand, if, if I'm going to be faithful as a husband, faithful as a father, I know I have to die to self daily. If I'm really going to serve and love my wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. If you're going to obey your parents, that requires some self-denial. You have to do something. I don't want to do it. My self says I want to do whatever I want to do. There's self-denial involved. God says, though, I should honor my parents. So you see, there's a practical example of denying yourself. If you're going to walk with the Lord and you want to have what we call devotions and spend time with the Lord, as you should every day, spend some time in prayer, spend some time in the Word, that's going to require self-denial, saying no to self whether that's getting to bed earlier or waking up earlier or not doing this or that so that you can have that time that you're with the Lord that you know that you need and you know the Lord wants you to have. There's self-denial. So you see how this works itself out in many different practical ways. And maybe that's something good for you if you have opportunity to discuss and say, okay, I want to follow Christ. I've denied myself. What does that look like for me in my stage of life, in the home? What does it look like at church? In a church, it looks like people not looking out for themselves, but seeking to serve others as Christ served. And we could go on and on with examples. The second thing, let him take up his cross. So self-denial, and now let him take up his cross. Do you want to follow Christ? Let him deny himself. Let him take up his cross. The self-denial has to come first. Nobody is prepared to take up the cross who has not first said no to self and denied themselves. So the order is significant here. Deny yourself and take up your cross. 
bear your cross. It's a shocking picture here. The picture is of Jesus bearing his cross, which he literally did, carrying his cross, bearing his cross, and that's a cross nobody else could bear. So we need to be clear about that. There's a uniqueness to the cross that Jesus bore. Only he could die for sinners. But Jesus is saying, he's giving us this picture, bearing your cross. It's Jesus bearing his cross and his disciples following behind him, bearing their cross. Whatever cross is allotted to them, whatever cross that God in his providence gives to them. That's the picture, a jarring picture. We hear this today. Most of us, I would imagine, understand what Jesus is saying. Take up your cross. You think, right, the cross. Jesus died on the cross. But we need to put ourselves in their shoes. This is also part of understanding the context. They did not even conceive of the fact that Jesus would be rejected by Jewish authorities and then be handed over to Romans to be executed on a cross. They knew what the cross was. Anybody in that day who heard the cross knew what was being spoken of. The cross was notorious. It was cruel. It was well-known, a torture device. The cross, the Roman cross. But they would not have been thinking that when Jesus said, I must be killed, they would not have thought he must be killed on a cross. So you understand that. But they still understood what he's saying. They would have understood this is weighty. To bear my cross, crucifixion. So Jesus is saying, take up your cross. But what does that mean? He means this. Let whoever desires to come after me be ready to suffer with me and for me. So let whoever would come after me and follow me be ready, be prepared, be so devoted to me that you would even lay down your life, that you would be willing to suffer and even lay down your life. That was the path Jesus walked, and we need to be ready to walk it. Jesus says this in John 15, 20. Getting near the end, he's preparing his disciples. He says, remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, says Jesus, they will also persecute you. So we, we're not going to sugarcoat discipleship here. Jesus is very clear in what he says. They persecuted me. They rejected me. I suffered, and I'm calling you to follow me. And that means calling you to, to suffer with me. And that could be to the extreme point of your death. So we need to reckon with that. That's what Jesus is talking about. You say, I'm not, you know, we don't really see people dying for their faith or all around us. No, it does happen. This is what Jesus is calling. So we need to let this word sink in and say, yes, this is demanding, it's weighty. This is what Jesus is calling us to do. Let me tell you just briefly what this doesn't mean, taking up your cross. The disciple's cross doesn't refer to just suffering in general. It is specifically for Christ's sake and for the gospel. So we all are, you're going to suffer many things in this life. And just because you suffer something and, you, and you're a disciple, that doesn't mean it's a cross in the sense of this call. The cross is suffering that you take up in taking a stand 
for Christ and for the gospel. So does that make sense? It's not just suffering in general. It's suffering for Christ. It's suffering with Christ. The cross taken up by the disciple is whatever suffering that may result from owning him and following in his steps. Now, for his disciples, those 12 disciples, that meant for them a great deal of suffering. Almost all of them died serving Christ. Almost all of them were martyrs. Peter himself, who denied them, this is encouraging, Peter denied Christ very strongly. In the end, he did not deny Christ. In fact, as history has it, Peter himself was crucified. So in the case of these 12 disciples, all but possibly one were killed for the faith, were killed for Christ. And you know that many, many Christians throughout history and even today here in our land, but especially in other parts of the world are dying for Christ. They're really suffering and taking up their cross even to death for Christ. So we ask, are we prepared for this? I'm asking you that. Are you prepared for this? This is, this is part of the demanding call, self-denial and cross-bearing. Are you prepared? Do you desire to follow Christ? Well, this is what Christ says that we must do. I want you to let that question sink in and seriously ask yourself that. Think about that. Prayerfully say, God, am I willing to deny myself and take up my cross to follow Christ, whatever cross that might be. Chances are you're not going to die for the faith, but you might. But you need to be willing to suffer. There's other crosses too. A young man in our church was recently converted and uh, this was very real to him. Recently converted, he came uh, to us and was strongly desiring baptism, wanted to join our church. His family was Roman Catholic. His parents very strongly Roman Catholic. He had been sprinkled as a baby and they were very much opposed to him being baptized and joining the church. So much so that they would show up at the church protesting and pleading with us. He knew what it would cost him. He knew it might cost him the relationship with his parents. They had even given some threats. So this became very real for him. And by God's grace, he said, Jesus has told me to do this. I'm going to follow my Lord. That's self-denial and cross-bearing. He's saying, come what may. This is the path of obedience, and I'm going to walk it, God helping me. You might hear this, and you wonder how... How am I going to be up for this? I ask that a lot. Lord, this is demanding. You know that at times I've caved in. Am I going to be up for it? And we have to trust that God will give us the grace. God will give us the grace. We need to trust that the grace of God that drew us to Christ in the first place and gave us that new heart and those new desires to follow Christ, we need to trust that that same grace is going to keep us with Christ and keep us holding to Christ, even in the face of persecution, even in the face of pressure from peers, whatever opposition you might face. So we trust in the grace of God. Because you might, you know, in your mind, go to these extreme cases and say, I don't know if I could do that for Christ. I love him, but could I die for him? And you have to trust God, your grace is sufficient for me. It will be enough for me at that time when I need it. And I trust that you will hold me. So Jesus is saying, first, 
Let him deny himself. Secondly, let him take up his cross. And then now thirdly, let him follow me. Let her follow me if she desires to follow, to come after me. We could translate this, let him, let her go on following me. The idea is continually, all the days of your life, following Jesus. Day after day after day, let them come and follow me. So this isn't just for a season. This isn't just a fad and say, hey, in this, this season of your life, you're going to be a follower of Christ. Jesus is saying, it's your whole life. Fads come and go. I've gone through a lot of phases in my life. It's funny sometimes to think about it. You think when you were younger, uh, there was a time when these big baggy jeans were really popular. Everybody wanted them. You see someone now and you say, you know, they look stupid with them. But they were cool. It was a phase. Yo-yos, whatever it might be. I don't even know if people play with yo-yos anymore. Baseball cards. I even had a paintball gun one time. I never used it, but I had it. And it was a phase. Don't let... Following Christ be a phase. It's not a phase. Jesus is calling you to follow him all of your life. Not just I'm looking back and saying, yeah, I followed him after that retreat for about a month. No, he's calling you to lay down your life and keep following him all the days of your life. That's what he's saying. And notice it's follow me. This is what I was saying at the beginning. It's deeply personal. We're talking about a loving attachment to a person, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, an attachment to Him, following Him, devoting yourself to Him as Lord and Savior, bowing your knee to Him in all of your life, saying to Him, take my life, saying to Him, I want to know more of you like Paul did. I want to know Him. I want to know Him. I want to grow in my understanding of Him and my relationship with Him, to cling to Him. That's what we're talking about. Follow me, says Jesus. So don't miss that emphasis. He says, follow me. Not an idea, not some religion, not just some set of doctrines, but it's a person, Jesus Christ, who says, follow me. And whatever crosses we have to bear along the way, there's the encouragement that we're following Christ, the one who laid down his life for sinners and also rose again. So there's a dark shadow. As we follow Christ, the shadow is the cross, and it's there. And we know it's costly. Following Christ is costly. But there's also this bright, glorious light of discipleship, and that's the resurrection, and it's the light in which we walk, and we know that Christ is victorious. We're not called to suffer for someone who's dead but a living Savior and a reigning Savior and one who is coming again. And if you don't have that firmly fixed in your mind and your heart, you're going to be back and forth. Am I going to follow him? Is he worth following? The more we share in Christ's sufferings, the more we will know him and have fellowship with him too. And that's another encouragement for whatever you might have to face in following Christ. Romans 8, 17, Paul says this, we are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ if indeed we suffer with him, suffer with Christ, that we may also be glorified together. Remember that light, glorification, that's speaking of, that's, that's the end of our salvation, being glorified with Christ. Yes, suffering now, 
but then glorified with him for all eternity. Paul talked about an eternal weight of glory. The Apostle Paul, he suffered a lot for Christ. And he said, these are light and momentary. Why? Because the eternal weight of glory of what he knew was coming, what had been promised of the salvation that he would inherit in Christ, he said, that, that, that outweighs all of my suffering so that they just seem small and light and momentary. So it's fairly clear. It's right there in the text. Jesus saying what we must do. Come after me. If anyone wants to do that, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Let me close with some encouragements to you. If these things are true, then whoever would want to follow Christ, and I hope it's all of you, whoever would want to follow Christ should count the cost. Jesus uses that language in Luke 14. Count the cost. You need to count the cost of following Christ. It is costly. But whether you follow Christ or not, there's a price to pay. You need to count the cost of following him, but also of not following Christ. And you need to think, if I follow Christ, it may cost me my life. What if I don't follow Christ? There's a price to be paid either way. If you don't follow Christ, Christ is going to go on to argue and give incentives for following him. And he makes it very clear that your soul will be lost forever. You will be lost forever. There's eternal life only in following Christ. So you need to count the cost of not following Christ. And that is ultimately destruction, hell. So you need to consider these things. The Christian life isn't easy. And I don't want to tell you that it's easy. Sometimes people will pitch something and say, if you follow Christ, your life's going to get better. And it will in many ways. But the idea is your problems are going to go away. Things are going to be easy for you. But that's not what we find in the scriptures. What's actually true is you might have more problems. Christian life is hard. It's a demanding call to follow Christ. So I want to be clear on that. But I also want to be clear that your greatest problem will be resolved if you follow Christ. And what is your greatest problem? It's your sin problem. Our greatest problem is we've sinned against God. We've rebelled against our maker. We've sinned against him. We're not right with him. His wrath by nature is against us. And all of us, unless we're saved, will spend eternity in hell. The Bible's clear. So, it's not an easy life, but it's the best life, and it's the only way of salvation is to come to Christ and to follow Christ, the only Savior of sinners. So count the cost. Count the cost of following him, but also of not following him. But the second thing, if you would follow Christ, set your mind on the things of God. Remember Peter. His mind was on the things of man. His mind was fixed on earthly things. And Jesus had his mind fixed on heavenly things, on the will of his Father. And because Peter had his mind so fixed on the things of man, he found these things inconceivable. And even for a time, as we saw, he denied Christ. So if you would follow Christ, set your mind firmly upon the things of God. This is a hard saying. You might wish Jesus never said this, but Jesus said this. And if we are to follow Christ, 
The way forward surely is to set our minds more and more on the things of God. Too often, we have our heads down, and it's just the here and now. All we see is what's right in front of us. I was in elementary school, I think it was. We were doing ABC order, alphabetical order. This is one of my early memories. I think it was traumatic for me. But I was doing this sheet. Everybody else had finished a class of like 20 people. And my, my paper was a mess. I was erasing it. And I could not put these words in order. And I finally realized that up on the board, the words had been written out in order for me. And everyone was done. They realized that I didn't. Well, what? My face was right in my paper, and I didn't lift up and see. And that's how we live our lives. The here and now is right in front of us. I've got this to do. I've got that to do. And we can spend our whole lives without lifting our eyes and looking at eternal things. And that's especially true when we're young. So consider, think about, set your mind on the things of God, and more and more so, If our minds are preoccupied with trivial things, which technology these days is designed to occupy us with trivial things, the buzzing, the dinging, this, that, this, that, your brain's in a hundred places, but it's not firmly set on the things of God if you let it go out into all of these places and all of these trivial things that we're so easily, myself included, consumed with. But we need to think about the things of God. If we're preoccupied with the things of man, if we give little attention to the things of God, to the word of God, the preaching of God, to prayer, etc., etc., it's going to be really hard to deny ourselves and take up our cross. So we need to be setting our minds daily on the things of God. I heard a pastor say once, or maybe I read it, but his primary task, he said, is to feed the flock by leading them to green pastures and to do this in order to prepare them for sacrifice on the altar of God. Feed the sheep in order to prepare them for sacrifice on the altar of God. He says that's the end of all pastoral work. It's the ultimate aim to lead God's people to offer themselves up to him in total devotion of worship and service. So as we feed on God's word, as our minds are filled with the things of God, even now, as I'm trying to open up these things, this weekend and tomorrow and Monday, as we're talking about these things, we're setting our mind on these things. And it's not just an exercise, an academic exercise. These are the words of God, and we're seeking to set our minds on the things of God. And and as we're doing that, We keep filling, we keep feeding, and God is preparing us to lay our lives on the altar for him. I'll just ask you again, do you read the Bible every day? Do you read the Bible? You should read the Bible every day. Now, sometimes you might not, and I realize that people for centuries didn't have a personal Bible, but we do. And you should take advantage of that. And I'll share this in my testimony, but until I started reading the scriptures regularly, which wasn't until my senior year of high school, I think the Lord had saved me, but I didn't grow. Set your mind on the things of God. Put it on the calendar and just say, I'm going to meet with you, God. Whatever else you're going to do that day, say, I'm going to make some time for God. I'm going to come and draw near to Christ. I'm going to spend time in prayer. So I want to challenge you to do that. Not just when you're on a retreat and it's easy to do, but do that every day. Do you pay attention at church? 
think most of you probably go to church. Do you pay attention when the pastor is preaching and try to get something from it and think about it and wrestle with it? Are you paying attention now? Pay attention to the preaching. Set your mind on the things of God. Only then will we be prepared to give ourselves entirely to God. Only then will we desire to follow Christ wherever he leads us. So that's the second thing. We need to count the cost. We need to set our minds firmly on the things of God and not the things of man. And then thirdly, if you would follow Christ, consider Christ often. Think about Christ. Meditate upon Christ, who he is, what he has done for you. I'm going to remind you of a text here that you're probably familiar with. You can turn there if you like, Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12. Just going to read the first four verses. Pictures the Christian life as a race. And talks about these cloud of witnesses. Those are the believers who have gone before us and who have endured. And leading the pack of the faithful would be the Lord Jesus. And we read this, therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, Hebrews 12, 1, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider, think about him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted the bloodshed, striving Against sin. So he says, consider him as we're following Christ. It's like we're running a race. He says, look to Christ, consider him, consider his suffering, and be encouraged to persevere. And then, fourthly and finally, remember that you are not your own, but you belong to God. If you're not a believer here, this is still true of you. Who made you? God made you. God is sustaining you right now. God is giving breath to you. Every breath you take, every heartbeat is a gift from God. God is sustaining his creation down to the details, down to the number of hairs on your head. That's a doctrine that we read in the scriptures that brings us comfort. But if you're an unbeliever, this is true of you too. You have a maker and therefore God owns you because he is your maker. You are not your own. But if you're a believer here, this is, this is true, not just in the sense that God made you, that he's your creator, but God is your redeemer. He's your father. And a mighty price has been paid to set you free, and that's the blood of Christ. And so you're not your own. You've been bought with a price. You've been bought with a price, so remember that. You do not belong to yourself. Let me quote here from a man who says, We are not our own insofar as we can. Let us therefore forget ourselves and all that is ours. And then he goes on to say, we belong to God. Let us therefore live for him and die for him. We belong to God. Let his wisdom and his will therefore rule all our actions. We belong to God. 
Let all the parts of our life accordingly strive toward him as our only lawful goal. We belong to God. The demanding call of our text is a call to live not for self, but for God. So Jesus says, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Do you desire to come after Jesus? Have you answered that call? The price is high. There is a high price to pay, but there's nothing better than following Christ. All right, let's pray. Gracious God, we do thank you that we are not our own. We thank you that you are the good creator of all things, that you have made this world and uphold this world, and even now our lives are sustained by you. And in your kindness and in your mercy, we have heard the words of life. And we pray, Lord, that they would not go in one ear and out the other, but that your word would have its effect. Your word is powerful. It is living and active And your gospel is your power unto salvation. And we pray that would be true of all of us here. That each of us, by your grace, would be following Christ. Help us to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, and to follow Jesus all the days of our lives. Help us to think of these things. Pray that our thoughts would be heavenward, even as we enjoy your creation and enjoy fellowship, enjoy good time and food. We pray, Lord, that our eyes would be lifted upward to consider you from whom all blessings flow. Every good and perfect gift comes from you. Help us to fix our minds upon you and upon Christ, we ask in his name. Amen. Amen.